to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. I know I feel like my life uh, is totally different since the social distancing quarantine began. And I think I'm actually in one of the least negatively affected groups. I'm still able to work full time. Uh, it's from home, so that's different. So I spend a lot of my time on Skype meetings, uh, on teleconferences. Uh, my kids are also home from school that entire time. Uh, we give them homeschool tasks to do every day, along with chores. And then we give them some like combination type things, kind of like a home economics class, uh, which involves preparing dishes for lunch, dinner, or desserts um, dressed up as education. <laughs> The biggest change, uh, really, that I think is pretty universal is that I suddenly have more time. Um, there's no taking kids to practices or games, because those things are all canceled, so that's like an hour and a half per day saved. Uh, there's no commute to work, which is about an hour that I save every day. Um, so while I'm still working as much as before, I certainly have more time than I'm used to. And this made me realize how often I have wished over recent months and years for more time or used not having time as the primary excuse for why I didn't do something that I knew was good for me. Well, now I suddenly have some. So here are the things that are still doable in the current environment that I have at least in my head said that I don't do because I haven't had time. Uh, daily dedicated time with God versus listening to the Bible app, which is what I mostly do. Uh, working out every day, catching up on financial tracking and changing software, canceling cable and moving to YouTube TV. I've done research. It's a pretty good option. Um, regularly reading a book on spiritual practice. I think I'm going to read The Divine Conspiracy. I've bought it. Uh, I just haven't read it. <laughs> uh, tracking calories to get under a target weight or target body mass in index. Uh, figure out what I want for my birthday. Baseball games are canceled and going to spring training games was supposed to be my, my birthday present. That was in January. Uh, and then actually going to a midweek Bible study. So apparently, given more time, I would do things that make me more healthy physically, uh, financially, and spiritually. Now, on the results side, here is a revised list of things I have actually done with my increased time. The ones that intersect have been turned pink. I have streamed more Netflix. Uh, I have worked out every day. I've increased time playing phone games because that was necessary. Uh, I've played more board games with my kids and online. Uh, virtual happy hours with friends. I didn't think I would be doing that. I've worked more hours, I think, which wasn't intentional, but I am pretty sure I've worked more hours while I've been at home. I have actually gone to a midweek Bible study and I wrote a message, um, which is this, um, which I think I would have done anyway. So I don't know if that even counts. So, not surprisingly, when gifted with more time, my actual use of that time didn't perfectly line up with my aspirations. Uh, but instead of talking through my massive failures and self-delusions, let's talk about what I actually did well. The one, th or one of the things I mentioned there that I have done with my safe commute time is I've actually regularly exercised. Before quarantine, I would usually exercise on the weekends, but almost never during the week. Now I use the time that I would normally be driving to work and helping my kids get ready to go to school to go for a run uh, or to do a home weightlifting or exercise routine. I'm at three straight weeks of exercising every day. 
I'm using an app called BodBot recently too. That's like the last week, um, which designs in-home workouts for you. You can put in like your fitness goals. You can put in what equipment you have and it'll just like create a workout for you. And you don't have to like, I don't know, decide what to do. It just decides all for you. It's great. Um, so yeah, that's been really good. But here's the weird part. Uh, the part that kind of says that Brad is crazy. In a short three weeks, I suddenly think of myself as a king of fitness, kind of like a quarantine gym rat. I have in my head that when this thing ends, I will have gone through total body transformation, lower body fat, more muscle, washboard abs, bulging biceps, improved energy, Olympian level cardiovascular health, and testosterone levels like a steroid era baseball player. You know, if steroids counted as real testosterone. As a reminder, it has only been three weeks. Last week, Megan talked about how sin can be understood as putting something else in God's place, even good things like work, achievement, or family. As I listened to that, I was shocked by how quickly a good choice to use spare time to exercise has, had become such a core part of my internal identity how much pride I felt in what I was doing, and how much time I spent thinking about what the effects would be on my life. And really, this is just one of the ways that I wrap my identity around things that aren't God. I spend an awful lot of time working, which can be fine, but there are definitely times when how I'm performing at work, um, how things are going with my team, with my own performance, and with our program uh, really form a significant part of my self-worth. And really, all it takes is something going poorly um, for me to quickly realize how much I have tied into this type of performance. Not only is it getting a lot of my time and energy, it's also being elevated to a level of importance in my soul that should be reserved for only God. And I think we all have these sorts of things in our lives. Maybe it's how well we do in school, how we look, our romantic relationships, our musical talent, uh, our reputation as a good person, our political affiliations, just being right about things, how busy we are, or how good we are with money. If we stop and think through our lives, or similarly to my example with work, have things suddenly not go well in one of these areas, we realize just how much of ourselves we have tied to this thing. And this is pretty crazy in light of what is available to us um, to, to use as our identity. In the book of John, we read uh, this about Jesus. It says, but to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. So God gives me this outstanding identity as a child of God, but I've exercised every day for three weeks straight. So that's what I decide to wrap my identity around instead. This is essentially me and us rejecting God and putting other things in our, pla in our lives in his place. To again reiterate what we learned last week, this is what is meant by the first of the 10 commandments. You must not have any other God but me. When we put other things in God's place, we are making them into our own little gods. We are rejecting the true God as the king of our lives and instead replacing him with achievement or sex or relationships or money or being a quarantine gym rat. And I think this understanding makes reading through the Old Testament a lot more applicable to our lives. Without this perspective, I, also, I often find myself unable to understand the Israelites turning away from God over and over and over again. 
And if you don't know what I'm talking about, give the book of Judges or First and Second Kings or most of the books of prophecy in the Old Testament a read. They're almost all about Judah and Israel turning away from God to worship idols and other gods. And interestingly enough, in the second of the Ten Commandments, God specifically talks about how he feels when this happens. It says, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. These idols uh, and bowing down to these images is often the form having other gods takes in the Old Testament. Uh, it's also, I think, why it's very easy for us to read this and in the Ten Commandments be like, oh, I don't have to worry about the idols one. Uh, I know I shouldn't lie, <laughs> uh, not murder, I get those, but the idol thing is kind of an old school thing. Um, but when we elevate things into God's place in our lives, this is essentially what we're doing. When we make our work, our bodies, our relationships, or our reputation into the most important thing in our lives, into what we focus our energy and attention on, uh, we are doing something very similar to creating an idol. So when I read through the Old Testament about Israel turning away from God and worshiping Baal or Asherah or creating idols, um, it's something that we can do too, but in a different way in our modern context, even though we don't have clear names or images for our gods. And when we read these passages with ourselves as the Israelites, the foolishness of choosing other things over God becomes clear. And we can see if we continue down this road that it leads to destruction, to exile, and to pain. But to really understand this point, we're going to keep going through Exodus. And as we go, remember that we are the Israelites in this story. And to kind of set the stage, remind all of us what has happened up to the point in the passage we're about to read, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years and for many generations. The people cried out to God for help in their suffering, and God heard their cry. Through Moses, he asked Pharaoh to let his people go and showed his power by striking the Egyptians with 10 plagues when Pharaoh repeatedly refused. And ultimately, God was able to get Pharaoh to release them in the events that are celebrated every year this week during Passover. God sent an angel to strike down the firstborn son of all the Egyptians, but spared the sons of the Israelites. God had set his people free, and as they were traveling toward the land, God promised them they saw him lead them in a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. They saw him part the Red Sea so they could escape the Egyptians when Pharaoh changed his mind and chased after them. They have at this point seen God provide food from the sky for them and provide water to drink when they needed it most. All of these things they have seen in the re God do in the recent months for them. And really, this was one of the great collections of miraculous um, miraculous deeds by God done in the Bible. And they saw and lived through all of it. Now let's read. Remember, we're the Israelites in this story. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
Hey, hey, Ron, you done messed up. <laughs> um, <laughs> for a little context, Aaron, and not long after this, Aaron goes on to become the first high priest of the nation of Israel, but he's the one who actually creates this golden calf. That's weird, right? Um, all right, let's keep reading. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So the people turn to an idol and God's jealous anger burns against them. Uh, he says to Moses, leave me alone so that I may destroy them. Now, if you were purposely identifying with the Israelites in that story, like I kind of directed everyone to, that's pretty rough. Um, when, you know, at the end, God wants his anger to burn against them so he may destroy them. So the, the natural question that comes from that is why is it that death and destruction uh, is the consequence here? Um, so I think what we need to understand is that when we make the choice to disconnect from God, when we choose to put other things in our life in God's rightful place, we are choosing the path that leads to death uh, instead of choosing God, the one who gives us life. This is what God set up all the way back in the Garden of Eden when he told Adam and Eve that if they eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good, of, of good and evil, that they will certainly die. It wasn't because the fruit was poisoned. It was because they were specifically choosing to put themselves in God's place. And that path, that choice of separation from God leads to death. And this isn't just something in the Old Testament either. It's in the New Testament. Uh, in Romans, it says that the wages of sin is death. Now in our, our modern context of Christianity with the knowledge that our sins are forgiven, uh, it is very easy for us to start, start thinking that when we stray from God and put other things in his place, that it's not a big deal. Sure, we need to turn back to him, um, but I don't think we often understand or feel the weight of what we've done. So when we read a passage like the golden calf and read about God's anger at the sins of Israel and death and destruction being the punishment, it feels harsher than what we have come to know and believe about God. And the result of this is that the importance and significance of Jesus dying for our sins starts to diminish. If the righteous consequence for our actions is lesser in our minds, so too is our thankfulness for our forgiveness. And this is what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about today. Jesus sacrifice, Jesus dying on the cross, this is Holy Week, uh, and today the focus is on Good Friday, the day Jesus loved us so much that he died so that we wouldn't have to. And the question I want to start with is, why did Jesus have to die for our sins to be forgiven? I mean, if God is all-powerful, why couldn't he just decide that people who were sorry for their sins were forgiven? Why would God sacrifice his own son like this? Isn't that a cruel choice to make for another person? Uh, maybe you know someone who's a parent and can't reconcile how a loving God could send their son to die. Shouldn't God just be able to use his unlimited cosmic power to make this right? Why did dying have to be a part of our good God's plan for our redemption? 
And the first reason I want to talk about, I think has to do with our understanding of forgiveness. In his book, Reason for God, Timothy Keller phrases this reason as real forgiveness causes costly suffering. So what does this mean? Um, Take, for example, a kid stealing another kid's bike at school. Let's call the one who got his bike stolen Zane for the sake of this sake of the story. In this hypothetical situation, the school, Mesquite Elementary, had video of the kid who stole the bike. The bike was recovered and returned to Zane, but it was broken. The kid who stole the bike decided to trash it a little bit first before dumping it. So in this situation, a crime was committed. We know who did it. So what happens? There are a few choices. One, you can call the police and file a report. This was a crime after all. Two, you can have the kid pay for the bike repair or his parents could pay for it. Isn't this really their fault anyway? Uh, Three, the kid who stole the bike is forgiven and pays nothing. Or four, this kid becomes Zane's butler for a year (laughs) because creative justice is the most fun. (laughs) So let's look at number three there. Um, What does it mean for number three to happen, for the kid who stole the bike to be forgiven and pay nothing? Um... Is the bike fixed if he's forgiven? No. Uh, The cost of the crime has been forgiven, but that just means that Zane, or more accurately, Zane's parents, have said that they will pay for the repair and the boy who stole the bike doesn't have to. The cost never went away. It was transferred from the guilty party to the forgiver. Now, in this real situation, we chose number two. Zane is my son, for anyone who didn't know that. Um, This kid was a fifth grade hooligan. We can't just forgive him. but <laughs> the real story of this is it took us, uh, this happened when Zane was in fourth grade. He's about to finish fifth grade. Um, it took over a year for us to actually get the quote of how much fixing the bike cost, because you know what the real cost was? The real cost was having to take the time to figure out where and how to get a bike fixed. Not until we had the extra coronavirus hours that we talked about up front did we actually get this done. So really, I think we forgave this kid by accident because he's moved on to a different school. <laughs> So bringing this back to how God forgives our sins, remember in our case, um, the cost isn't a $60 bike repair. Uh, It's death. What does it mean for God to forgive us? Similarly, our forgiveness did not mean the cost of our sin went away. It means that it transferred to the forgiver. That means it transferred to God, which brings us to another question. Why did God send his son to be the sacrifice? Uh, This is an understandable question. At many points in the Bible, Jesus is referred to as the son of God. Jesus refers to God as his father. However, Jesus also claimed to be God himself, which was ultimately one of the reasons the religious leaders of the time wanted him killed. It says in the gospel of John, when they were about to stone him, they replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. And there's a, a little more clear explanation earlier in John where it says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father. So this verse says the son, Jesus, is himself God, but also that he is in the closest relationship with the father. Confusing, right? Uh, so this is the Trinity. The truth that God the Father, that Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one God. 
um, what the deeper theological implications of this are, I'm going to leave to other folks, our seminary trained ministers, Ryan and Tyler. And actually, we are going to have a service specifically on this in two weeks. Um, but for how it applies today, this means that God sending his son to be the sacrifice is not a barbaric form of child sacrifice. It is God paying the enormous debt for our sins himself. And like we said earlier, when someone is forgiven, the debt didn't go away. It was transferred to the forgiver. And to recap, the first reason Jesus had to die to forgive our sins is that there was a debt that had to be paid. The forgiveness didn't mean the consequences for our sins went away. They were transferred to the forgiver and then were paid when Jesus died on Good Friday. All right, the second reason, again from Keller's reason for God, is that real love is a personal exchange. So what does this one mean? Um, one example that Keller gives is having kids. So newborn babies, as many of us have seen and experienced, um, are completely dependent on their parents for pretty much everything. In order for them to survive and thrive, they need their parents to care for them. So what does this mean for the parents uh, that love this child? So taking care of those needs meaning, means the parents giving up their own independence in the form of their time, sleep, money, and energy so that the child can grow and survive. The parents loving the child means an exchange of their independence for a certain measure of the dependence of their newborn. Another example, uh, I said earlier that we've been watching more Netflix lately. Uh, we haven't started Tiger King yet, despite podcasts, social media, and Netflix itself strongly encouraging us to do so. What we have finished up is Dexter, and I really, really liked it. Uh, it's about a serial killer. Um, it, it is a it well earns its TVMA rating. It's on it's from Showtime. So just you know, if, if you want to check it out, make sure you know that. Um, so he's a serial killer, but he only kills bad people. He has kind of a code. And now I apologize. This is a bit of a spoiler if you're actually going to watch this. Um, but in one of the later seasons, his sister, who's kind of the one constant close relationship in his life, finds out that he's a serial killer. And she chooses to continue their close relationship and to continue to love him. And this means that her life immediately becomes more dangerous. She is now an accomplice to some of his crimes. She knows what he's done. She has not turned him in and even helps cover them up. In this case, choosing to love someone, to really love them, involves getting, um, giving them parts of yourself and taking on some of the parts of their life in return. In this case, some of the danger and the guilt of what he's done. And if we apply this, apply this idea to God, it means to really love us, to love people. He would, have to, he would be choosing to take on some of our hardship, some of our pain, some of our burdens, and our guilt. And this is exactly what happened. When we read in the book of Philippians, it says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. So similar to a parent giving up their time and independence to care for a child, Jesus gave up his divine privileges to become a human because he loves us. Loving people who have sinned and who justice says deserve to die for God meant coming to earth as a human to help us and to save us. 
And this is also one of the key ways that we can understand how God is so much different from so much of the rest of our world, different than other gods, different than people in power all over the world. Instead of using his power for personal gain, Jesus gives it up to join us in our misery and our death. And this is love. This is the second reason Jesus had to die for our sins to be forgiven, because God loves us. And love by its very nature involves going to the ones that you love, entering into their lives and letting the lines between you two blur. Joys are shared and so is pain because when, we, when you really love someone, you commit to being with them through it all. If they hurt, you give up some of your comfort to provide them comfort when they need it. And that means taking on some of that hurt as well. And to kind of simplify things and to also summarize where we, what we've covered so far, the first reason that Jesus had to die for our sins and be forgiven is that real forgiveness causes costly suffering. There was a debt that had to be paid. This, is the reason, this reason is kind of all wrapped around justice. God forgiving us didn't change the way that he created the world, where sin rightly has consequences. And those consequences in this case were, were death. And that debt had to be paid. The second reason is that real love means personal exchange. We don't have a God who is remote and removed from us. We don't have to shout to get his attention. He loves us. And that means getting all mixed up in the mess that is sinful humanity. The second reason is driven by love. So the short answer for why Jesus had to die for us to be forgiven is a balance between justice and love. We seem to have the idea that the loving and proper thing would be for God to just forgive everyone, but that isn't just. And it doesn't match every other example of love that we see around us in the world. Where love requires giving something of yourself to choose to be with the ones that you love. And the great part of the story and the good news of the Bible is that God did choose to come to earth. He chose love. He chose to come and suffer with us so that he could be with us. And the question that faces all of us is whether we will make the same choice to be with him and to love him. Will we choose a life of connection with God, with him in his rightful place on the throne in our lives, or will we choose our idols, our substitutes, and our golden calves? Will we choose life, love, and togetherness with God, or will we choose to live separated from him, the path that leads to death? This is the question that faces us and everyone around us. And I pray that we would be people who choose God, who choose life, and who choose love. All right, with that in mind, uh, it is application time. You may ask, Brad, what is the application for exploring why Jesus had to die for our sins to be forgiven, you ask? Well, let's go. We'll find out. Uh, first, hearkening all the way back to the intro, we all have more time on our hands, and, and with probably some few exceptions. This is an unusual time, but that also means that it's an unusual opportunity. It's important in our lives to identify times in your life like this when there's a sudden change in your routines because they are easier than normal times to make real changes in your life. If we pay attention and are intentional, these shocks to your normal schedule can be an opportunity to make changes in your life that you have long intended to do but haven't followed through on. On the other side of this, if you aren't intentional, they can be a time when we fall out of good established habits too. So pay attention and make the decision to create positive habits during these times. This could be something that you've been meaning to do for a while, or if you're open to suggestions, I've got some ideas. 
uh, one possible good change is exactly what Megan said last week, which is fasting, specifically from food, from sundown, from sun up to sundown. I wrote it backwards. Um, <laughs> was the main recommendation um, removing the things that we depend on to make our dependence on God more real in our lives and to remind us through hunger to turn our minds and thoughts to God is very powerful. Also, it really takes more than a week to really dive into and incorporate some of these spiritual practices. So hopefully we can kind of focus on this for a while and see what it does in our lives and how it helps us to connect more deeply to God. If you want something entirely new, um, and especially if you enjoyed some of the logical and intellectual side of these last two weeks in this series in general, uh, I would recommend diving deeper by reading Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God. Um, you know, if, if as I was laying some of this out, you kind of had more questions or had objections to things, uh, that, that makes perfect sense that there are, there's only kind of so much you can cover in a, you know, hopefully 30 minute message. Um, whereas the book goes a lot deeper into things and gives some, some more complete explanations. Um, along with, you know, this is also kind of pulled from one to two chapters of that book. There's so much more in there. Um, and it's a lot of good stuff and it's worth a read. Uh, lastly, and a little bit less concretely, uh, I, I think that we all need to understand sin a little bit better. Um, I think we often take forgiveness for granted and kind of forget the cost of it. Uh, I think some of this is understandable and almost points to how powerful and far reaching um, the forgiveness that came from Jesus sacrifice really is. But it feels like we get too casual about it a lot of the times. Uh, it's it's kind of like we're children who leave messes around the house or break dishes and don't understand why our parents get mad and make a big deal about it because it all ends up getting cleaned up or fixed every time. And this should not be our attitude or our response to Jesus' sacrifice. So this week uh, and this Friday especially, let's remember the true cost of our sin and thank God that he paid the price for what we have done. One way to remember this would be to, to watch The Passion of the Christ. Uh, it does a great job of underscoring the cost Jesus paid for our sin. But kind of on a more positive note, as we remember this on Friday, um, we can do so with the knowledge that Sunday is coming, that while there is suffering and that a debt needed to be paid, that it was paid, and that the way it was paid more than covered all of our sins. Remember that suffering is not the end and that death did not have the final say in the story. And get ready to come back next week and be ready to celebrate whatever that looks like quarantine style. So to close us out today and, and also summarize where we are in this series as a whole, I want to share a quote from John Scott's book, The Cross of Christ. It says, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you. Um, I thank you so much that, um, that despite being a jealous God, uh, that you're also a God who forgives. That you sent your son, that you came yourself um, so that we could live with you, Lord, so that things could be made right, God, so that we could live our lives with you instead of suffer, suffer the consequences of what we've done, Lord. God, I pray that you would be with us this week in whatever our week looks like, Lord. I pray for just people everywhere, um, for the anxiety, um, for the uncertainty of our times, Lord. I pray that, that you would give people peace 
that people would love each other, that they would connect despite being remote, Lord. I pray that we would go through Holy Week, Lord, and understand what that looks like and remember everything that happened, Lord, everything you've done for us and get ready to celebrate on Easter, Lord. We love you, God. And we place things in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.